I am Dr. Grace Wright, and I'm joined today with a panel of my colleague, female leaders in rheumatology, Dr. Catherine Bakewell and Dr. Elaine Husney. These are our disclosures. This video is sponsored by Novartis Medical Affairs, and we have been compensated for our time. Novartis determined the topic area of interest, spondylarthritis, and within the topic areas, publications were independently selected by us, the medical experts, without any influence from Novartis. Over the course of the next 10 to 15 minutes, we will discuss what we believe to be the most impactful work done in the spondylarthritis space in 2020, specifically related to disease assessment, treatments, and management guidelines. So let's start with treatment, and we'll start with treatment of axial spondylarthritis. Maintenance of clinical remission in early axial spondylarthritis following sertolizumab pegol dose reduction is our first analysis. This was a paper looking at the taper of sertolizumab to 200 milligrams Q4, showing that this was possible in early AXPOT patients for patients in sustained remission. However, complete discontinuation had a higher risk of flare. When we compare this to prior studies, we see that these patients were in remission for a longer period of time, and that may have influenced uh, the outcomes. What is your experience with tapering patients with axial spondylarthritis? Similar to what you highlighted, it seems that patients do well with a lowered dose or perhaps widening of the dosing interval as opposed to complete or abrupt discontinuation of therapy. And so it's nice to have data that supports what we have seen clinically in practice. And I could also ask, so Elaine, I know in the guidelines, there is no strong recommendation for tapering. How does this information help our practice? Well, I think one of the things about, you know, withdrawal or de-escalation, as Catherine has mentioned, is that, you know, patients sort of come to my office and do it themselves, and then I need to then figure out, you know, uh, what to do next um, in terms of the data on recapturing rate, right? So the biggest uh, problem we have is that if we do de-escalate or withdraw, do they recapture to the response they had before? And I think, you know, the deeper there are in remission or the longer they are in remission, I guess the more comfortable I would be um, to do those scenarios. Now let's talk about the relationship between disease activity status or clinical response and patient reported outcomes in patients with non-radiographic axial spondylarthritis, 104 week results from the randomized controlled Embark study. Now, using composite indices are valid metrics for monitoring treatment responses, and this was done in the Embark study, but we also use patient-reported outcomes using ASDAS, BASDI, ASAS, and MFI, which is a fatigue outcome measure, and changes in PROs from baseline to week 104 reflected long-term changes in disease activity in these patients, such that PRO non-responders had poorer outcomes than responders. So Elaine, this was a great study looking at the uh, correlation between PROs as a means to measure disease outcomes. Is that something that you find helpful in your practice? I do. I'm really glad you picked this article because I think patient-reported outcomes are something that we are getting more comfortable with now. Um, we're seeing it more and more, not only in clinical trials, but really in clinical practice, right? We're making the patient's voice being heard. And to have some data that confirms that there is some validity to what the patient feels and the disease activity that is ongoing, I think is only gonna be helpful for, for you know, better patient outcomes in the future. 
Understanding differences between men and women with axial spondyloarthritis is a nice summary and contextualization of recent studies of the sex differences in both non-radiographic axpa and ankylosing spondylitis, including both disease manifestations and progression. And really begs the question, do we need to stratify patients by sex in our clinical trial design so that we can evaluate differences in response to treatments as well? Treat to target in axial spondyloarthritis from its concept to its implementation is a really in-depth review of the treat to target definition and strategy in AXPA, examining risk factors, disease domains, disease targets, implementation strategies, and pharmacologic interventions, and really asks us to think about the use of disease activity measures in routine clinical care in a holistic strategy for care of patients with axial spondyloarthritis. Safety of ixekizumab in adult patients with plaque psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and axial spondyloarthritis, data from 21 clinical trials, is presented as an integrated safety data set in this publication. Long-term analysis on the safety of ixekizumab was consistent with previously published reports and did not show any new safety signals. Incidence rates per 100 patient years included some important outcomes, such as cytopenia with a range of 0.7 to 2.5, inflammatory bowel disease or ulcerative colitis, 0.4 to 0.5, and iridocyclitis with a rate of 3.1. So this really helps us think through safety with our 17 inhibitors in clinical care and have the discussion with our patients about what the risks are. So, so Elaine, we now have this integrated safety data published in 2020, but we also have other integrated safety data sets looking at multiple areas that are of concern, such as inflammatory bowel disease, eye disease, and varicytopenias. How do you feel about this long-term analysis? How does this help you in your day-to-day -day practice? interesting to me that many of these trials now have to include so many clinical trials, right? So your particular one was 21 trials, which show me that these are really uncommon side effects, but important to know. And as we are getting more and more data on safety signals, I think we become better and more confident about which type of patients um, these um, drugs will be the most useful. Hi, we're going to turn our attention to treatment guidelines in both ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis treatment guidelines and recommendations, as well as the management of COVID-19 pandemic. So as we all know, it's really hard to get through any uh, lecture or Zoom call uh, without mentioning COVID. Um, I do want to highlight two important, uh, trial, uh, two important papers here. The uh, National Psoriasis Foundation has a COVID-19 task force guidance committee, and the American College of Rheumatology has a management of rheumatic diseases in adults with COVID-19. And I think the main sort of take home point here is that we really need to tell that our patients need to stay on treatment for their immune-mediated diseases. So immunosuppressive treatment um, is not associated with an increased risk of COVID. Um, and this has been seen not only in our disease group, but also in uh, IBD and other immune-mediated diseases. The guidelines also optimize telemedicine. So as we know, we have all um, now you know, had to convert pretty fast um, to doing um, telemedicine so that we can reach our patients. Um, and these guidance uh, documents um, support that. 
Um, the emerging, you know, sort of best practices um, is really to, uh, you know, keep patients on treatment, um, get them vaccinated. The mRNA vaccine has not uh, has been shown to be safe and effective and not exacerbating or harmful for patients with immune-mediated diseases. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting and, and evolving is borrowing um, a lot of the data from the influenza vaccine and what to do with holding certain um, medications. So at the moment, you know, holding the uh, methotrexate for a couple weeks, um, as well as rituxan, you know, hopefully giving the vaccine at the nadir becomes important. So these are all living documents. So as I'm as I'm speaking now, I'm sure they are busy uh, looking at you know further recommendations based on the amount of new information that we get on the COVID-19 um, pandemic. Next, I'd like to talk about psoriatic arthritis treatment guidelines. Um, the ULAR uh, recommendations are the newest ones that I wanted to highlight in the management of psoriatic arthritis. As you know. PSA is really complex, has a very diverse presentation, which makes these guidelines very challenging. Uh, I can tell you that there are similarities with this guideline, with uh, the, the two other most recent ones, which is the ACR NPF guideline and the GRAPA guideline. So the similarities are that the overarching theme is a treat to target approach. Um, the other similarities is that they all now include patients on the guideline. Uh, treatment uh, list, which is great. So you have a patient perspective. And then getting to, to sort of the uh, differences uh, amongst the guidelines are also really important to highlight. So the ACR NPF guidelines um, that were published about a year and a half ago differ from the ULAR in that they really have much more, I would say, specific scenarios. And they're using a methodology where they're asking you in a specific scenario, would you choose drug A over B? While the ULAR and the GRAPA guidelines has uh, perhaps a little bit more domain-driven and step-up therapy um, of, a, of a methodology approach. So what that means is they look at whichever domain might be the, uh, the worst that we're talking about and then sort of recommend treatment from that, knowing that patients can have several domains and that you might have to deal um, with different domains in treatment. But I would say that's um, you know um, one of the differences that I see between the ACR guidelines and the GRAPA um, ULAR guidelines. We also know that TNF has been the first line for active, uh, uh, active PSA treatment for the ACR guideline. And it's been unclear that if they don't respond to the TNF, should we switch to another TNF or should we switch to a different mechanism of action such as the IL-17 um, blockade. So probably more to come in future guidelines for that. But I would love to ask uh, both uh, Catherine and Grace, um, how do you actually implement these um, guidelines um, in your practice? Well, what I love, I'll, I'll start with this, Catherine. What I love about the new ULAR guidelines are this real focus on domains. Um, and it helps me when I'm having the discussion with patients to highlight exactly why, whether it's from an efficacy or a safety perspective, I'm gonna choose a particular route with them. Um, and, and then we do our leaps and, and make, you know, have our sharing of that decision from that point forward. But it's a nice way to conceptualize this for patients. Absolutely. I've struggled with the guidelines to a certain extent because of the recommendation for biologic therapy out the gate, particularly with uh, the ACR and PF guidelines. I still feel like 
methotrexate has its place um, and, and or other conventional DMARDs and, and it's required for a lot of step edits. That being said, there are definitely places where biologic out the gate is indicated as your first line therapy. And I think that when you appeal to insurance companies, it's so helpful to have the guidelines to take you there. It was The ACR was clear when they published their guidelines that this was based upon the preponderance of evidence for patient efficacy and safety, not based upon cost. Uh, but we do live in a real world where we have to balance all of these things respectively. So I think that would be my one criticism, I guess, uh, against the guidelines. Those are really great points. I think we're always balancing the amount of evidence versus the expert opinions. And this is what the guidelines are trying to help us with. So I do want to mention another article um, for those who want to take a deeper dive um, into the PSA guidelines. There's treatment guidelines and psoriatic arthritis by Drs. Ogby, Coates, and Gladman. Next, I'd like to turn our attention to the axial spondyloarthropathy guidelines. Um, there was an update in 2019 where the ACR and Spartan uh, network um, produced their treatment of ankylosing spondylitis as well as non-radiographic um, axial spondyloarthropathies. And I would say once again, um, there was uh, sort of overarching um, themes, you know, trying to look at best practices and optimizing, uh, you know, that we could be treating these patients. Uh, what was uh, similar to the psoriatic arthritis guidelines is that the TNF inhibitors um, are the first line um, that are recommended. What is a little bit different is that if somebody doesn't um, respond to TNF, uh, that there is some evidence um, that switching to an IL-17 um, inhibitor family um, may be helpful. Um, they also use different scenarios, um, one of which, you know, I find very difficult to treat um, in my patients is um, the sort of diffuse emphysitis and, and trying to figure out, you know, the burden of emphysitis versus things that might mimic emphysitis. Um, so I would like to ask, you know, Catherine, uh, and, and you might go into this with your next um, session on imaging, um, but how do we really best sort of understand the burden of emphysitis and um, how do we look at imaging for that? No, that's a fantastic question. And, and honestly, I, I couldn't have asked for a better segue to the next section, but I will say in short that uh, imaging is a fabulous way to differentiate, for example, between a fibromyalgia uh, tender point and enthesitis because the, both patients will say, ouch, uh, when you press upon that insertion point, but the uh, ultrasound or, or other imaging modalities can help us differentiate there the presence of true inflammation. And we have seen ultrasound imaging built into our classification criteria, um, particularly for ultrasound, it's gonna be there in gout and polymyalgia rheumatica, but it is, I think, very missing uh, for psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, some of our other classic inflammatory arthropathies. Um, and it needs to be present in our treatment guidelines, in my opinion. So. Without further ado, thank you for the, uh, the introduction to, to chapter three. In this next section, I wanna walk us through some imaging considerations for early disease recognition. But actually in reference to what Elaine was just mentioning, I first wanna talk about actually treatment uh, monitoring. So this paper from 2020 entitled, Can Imaging Be a Proxy for Remission in Axial Spondyloarthritis? Highlights the importance of MRI and 
brings to question whether we should be getting sequential MRIs for our patients with known or documented axial spondyloarthropathy. And while it does not answer the question, in fact, it states upfront treating to target based upon imaging uh, has not been of proven efficacy in the axial spondyl arthritis arena. Uh, it highlights its utility and I think merits further investigation. Next, I'd like to talk about this is a step back. This is an ACR uh, presentation entitled Controversies in the Diagnostic Evaluation of Axial Spondyl Arthritis, an Experiential Review. And multiple experts convened during our ACR meeting and said, if you have a patient in front of you with axial spondyl arthritis, what kind of MRI should you be getting? Which imaging findings are sensitive and specific? We all know that musculoskeletal radiologists are not all created equal, and we need to be able to take a look at MRIs ourselves to help decide whether or not our patient indeed suffers from an axial spondyl arthropathy. So in answer to the question, we wanna be getting an MRI of the SI joints, not the lumbar spine, which does not improve our diagnostic accuracy. We want to be getting T one and stir-weighted imaging, and we do not need gadolinium since this is an osteitis and not a synovitis. Bone marrow edema is going to be the most common initial lesion early in disease, followed by a fatty metaplasia and finally new bone formation. But the bone marrow edema is not specific. So when we're looking at bone marrow edema, we want to take into account the extensity, location, intensity of these lesions when we're deciding whether our patient truly has spondyloarthropathy. The most specific lesions are going to be fatty metaplasia and erosive disease or structural disease. And we can see these in patients with, if you will, quote, burnt out disease who do not in fact have active sacroiliitis. Next, I want to talk about the development and validation of a sonographic enthesitis instrument in psoriatic arthritis the GRAPA Diagnostic Ultrasound Enthesitis Tool, or the DUET project. This article highlights the development of a novel diagnostic sonographic enthesitis screening tool for psoriatic arthritis. Now this is in contrast to screening tools such as the OMRACT enthesitis scoring system that has previously been used in clinical trials such as Ultimate. The OMRACT enthesitis scoring system is used for treatment monitoring and not for diagnostic purposes. And as you can see from this grid here, if you're going to score your morphological or B mode changes, you would not score a patient for the presence of calcifications and thesophytes or erosions without reversible treatable changes such as hypoecogenicity and thickening. The idea here is if you have a patient again with inactive disease, you don't want them to score high due to the presence of prior damage that would not respond to treatment. But here I'm showing you an image of a patient from my own clinical practice with an extensive calcaneal erosion and cortical irregularities without changes of active enthesitis. We would want to score this patient in a diagnostic enthesitis scoring system, but not for treatment monitoring purposes. Moving on, I'd like to talk about structural enthesial lesions in patients with psoriasis are associated with an increased risk of progression to psoriatic arthritis. This work is important since it highlights that patients with psoriasis and any enthesial lesion are up to five times more likely to go on to develop psoriatic arthritis. And it underscores the growing body of evidence that enthesitis is in fact the primary or initial lesion in psoriatic arthritis. And in this paper was highlighted 
by two different GRAPA members who were bringing forth what they felt to be the most important uh, bodies of work from this year's ACR meeting. So Catherine, just to query you on this, this was a peripheral quantitative CT that most, if none of us, will have in our practices. Um, so just to, to remind us that this is not something I can just uh, order, have the patient go downstairs and get. So an important, important finding, but we'll have to see how we um, implement this on a practical level. Grace, that's a fantastic point. Not only does it expose the patient to radiation, but it is not something that we have, generally speaking, readily available to us, um, nor are we getting uh, high resolution peripheral quantitative CTs or CTs at all of MCPs two and three in regular clinical practice. But knowing that these lesions are present um, and may help predict the onset of psoriatic arthritis at least can perhaps give us a paradigm for what lesions we should be searching for in our psoriasis patients to help predict the subsequent development of PSA. But your point is very, very well made. Next, I wanna talk about secukinumab significantly decreased joint synovitis measured by power Doppler ultrasonography in biologic naive patients with active psoriatic arthritis, primary 12 week results from a randomized placebo controlled phase three study. So this was the abstract of the ultimate trial that was presented at this year's ACR meeting. And to me, this was a very exciting study. This was a first of its kind trial demonstrating efficacy of secukinumab in synovitis in PSA patients at week 12. And it really represents a shift in our understanding of treatment evaluation, AKA that this may be more imaging based. And at a minimum, underscores the availability of the sensitive screening tool in the hands of the clinician to detect early treatment response, since in this trial, synovitis response was seen as early as week one. And it begs the question how such a sensitive screening tool could impact our day-to-day -day clinical practice. Yeah, I think this is so interesting, Catherine, that we're really pushing the envelope and you know we're used to kind of waiting, you know, maybe 12 weeks before we see the patient again. And now we might have some early markers, you know, and as we know, the earlier we're able to treat our patients, the better their outcome is. So very exciting. 